and welcome back to Suppa Stories. And today we're going to continue reading um, our Gunslinger book written by Stephen King. And we had just completed our official first chapter and we are getting ready to dive into chapter two titled The Way Station. So we have been with Roland who is our Gunslinger through the first part of this journey and he's been crossing the desert looking for the man in black. We've heard the tale of him meeting Brown at the edge of the desert and the telling of what happened in a little settlement called Tall. Um, after spending the evening with Brown, we are going forward. Um, he, he has left him behind and he is now crossing the desert uh, still in pursuit of the man in black, who is his quarry that he's chasing across. You know, of course, uh, the southeast is, is the direction that he's traveling, so he's been following the man in black. So, without further ado, let's go on ahead and get started. This is Chapter 2, The Way Station, and we will begin now. All right, let's go. Chapter 2, The Way Station. A nursery rhyme had been playing itself through his mind all day, the maddening kind of thing that will not let go, that mockingly ignores all commands of the conscious mind to cease and desist. The rhyme was, The rain in Spain falls on the plain, there is joy and also pain, but the rain in Spain falls on the plain. Time's a sheet, life's a stain. All the things we know will change, and all those things remain the same. But be ye mad or only sane, the rain in Spain falls on the plain. We walk in love, but fly in chains, and the plains in Spain fall in the rain. He didn't know what a plain was in the context of the rhyme's last couplet, but knew why the rhyme had occurred to him in the first place. There had been the recurring dream of his room in the castle, and of his mother, who had sang it to him as he lay solemnly in the tiny bed by the window of many colors. She did not sing it at bedtimes, because all small boys born to the high speech must face the dark alone. But she sang it to him at nap times, and he could remember the heavy gray rain light that shivered into rainbows on the counterpane. He could feel the coolness of the room, and the heavy warmth of the blankets. Love for his mother and her red lips, the haunting melody of the little nonsense lyric, and her voice. Now it came back maddeningly, like a dog chasing its own tail in his mind as he walked. All his water was gone, and he knew it was very likely, he knew he was very likely a dead man. He had never expected it to come to this, and he was sorry. Since noon, he had been watching his feet rather than the way ahead. Out here, even the devil grass had grown stunted and yellow. The hard pan had disintegrated into places into mere rubble. The mountains were not noticeably clearer, although sixteen days had passed since he had left the hut of the last homesteader, a loony, sane young man on the edge of the desert. He had had a bird, the gunslinger remembered, but he couldn't remember the bird's name. He watched his feet move up and down like the heddles of a loom, listened to the nonsense rhyme sing itself into a pitiful garble in his mind, and wondered when he would fall down for the first time. 
He didn't want to fall, even though there was no one to see him. It was a matter of pride. A gunslinger knows pride, that invisible bone that keeps the neck stiff. What hadn't come to him from his father had been kicked into him by court, a boy's gentleman if ever there was one. Court, yar, with his red bulb of a nose, his scarred face. He stopped and looked up suddenly. It made his head, his head buzz for a moment. His whole body seemed to float. The mountain streamed against the far horizon, but there was something else up ahead, something much closer, perhaps only five miles away. He squinted at it, but his eyes were sandblasted and were going glare-blind. He shook his head and began to walk again. The rhyme circled and buzzed. An hour later, he fell down and skinned his hands. He looked at the tiny beads of blood on his flaked skin with disbelief. The blood looked no thinner. It looked like any blood now drying in the air. It seemed almost as smug as the desert. He dashed the drops away, hating them blindly. Smug? Why not? The blood was not thirsty. The blood was being served. The blood was being made sacrifice unto. Blood sacrifice. All the blood needed to do was run and run and run. He looked at the splotches that had landed on the hard pan and watched as they were sucked up with uncanny suddenness. How do you like that blood? How does that suit you? Oh, Jesus, I'm far gone. He got up, holding his hands to his chest. The thing he'd seen earlier was almost in front of him, so close it made him cry out. A dust-choked crow-croak. Crow-croak. It was a building. No, two buildings, surrounded by a fallen rail fence. The wood seemed old, fragile to the point of illvisness. It was wood being transmogrified into sand. One of the buildings had been a stable. The shape was clear and unmistakable. The other was a house, or an inn, a way station for the coach line. The tottering sand house, the wind had crusted the wood with grit until it looked like a sand castle. The sun had beat upon at low tide and hardened into a temporary abode, cast a thin line of shadow, and someone sat in the shadow, leaning against the building. The building seemed to lean with the burden of his weight. Him, at last, the man in black. The gunslinger stood with his hands to his chest, unaware of his declamatory posture and caught. But instead of the tremendous winging incitement he had expected, or perhaps fear, or awe, there was nothing but the dim, altruistic guilt for the sudden, raging hate of his own blood moments earlier, and the endless ring of Rosie of the childhood song. The rain in Spain, he moved forward, drawing one gun, falls on the plain. He came the last quarter mile at a jolting, flat-footed run, not trying to hide himself. There was nothing to hide behind. His short shadow raced him. He was not aware that his face had become a gray and dusty death mask of exhaustion. He was aware of nothing but the figure in the shadow. It did not occur to him until later that the figure might have even been dead. It kicked through one of the leaning fence rails. It broke in two without a sound, almost apologetically, and lunged across the dazzled and silent stable yard, bringing the gun up. You're covered! You're covered! Hands up, your horse, son! You're... The figure moved restlessly and stood up. The gunslinger thought, My God, he has worn away to nothing. What's happened to him? 
because the man in black had shrunk two full feet, and his hair had gone white. He paused, struck dumb, his head buzzing tunelessly. His heart was racing at a lunatic rate, and he thought, I'm dying right here. He sucked the white-hot air into his lungs and hung his head for a moment. When he raised it again, he saw it wasn't the man in black, but a boy with sun-bleached hair, regarding him with eyes that did not even seem interested. The gunslinger stared at him blankly, then shook his head in negation. But the boy survived his refusal to believe he was a strong delusion. One wearing blue jeans with a patch on one knee, and a brown, pale, and a plain brown shirt of rough weave. The gunslinger shook his head again and started for the stable with his head lowered, gun still in his hand. He couldn't think yet. His head was filled with motes, and there was a huge, thrumming, aching building in it. Inside of the stable was the silent and dark exploding with heat. The gunslinger stared around himself with huge, floating wall eyes. He made a drunken about-face and saw the boy standing in the ruined doorway, staring at him. A blade of pain slipped smoothly into his head, cutting from temple to temple, dividing his brain like an orange. He reholstered his gun, swayed, put his hands out as if to ward off phantoms, and fell over on his face. When he woke up, he was on his back. There was a pile of light odorless hay beneath his head. The boy had not been able to move him, but he'd made him reasonably comfortable, and he was cool. He looked down at himself and saw that his shirt was dark and wet. He looked at his face and tasted water. He blinked at it. His tongue seemed to swell in his mouth. The boy was hunkered down beside him. When he saw the gunslinger's eyes were open, he reached behind him and gave the gunslinger a dented tin can filled with water. He grasped it with trembling hands and allowed himself to drink a little, just a little. When that was down and sitting in his belly, he drank a little more. Then he spilled the rest over his face and made shocked blowing noises. The boy's pretty lips curved in a solemn little smile. "'Would you want something to eat, sir?' "'Not yet,' the gunslinger said. "'There was still a sick ache in his head from the sunstroke, "'and the water sat unsteadily in his stomach "'as if it did not know where to go. "'Who are you?' "'My name is John Chambers, but you can call me Jake. "'I have a friend, well, a sort of friend. "'She works for us, who calls me Bama sometimes, "'but you can call me Jake.' "'The gunslinger sat up. The sick ache became hard and immediate. He leaned forward and lost a brief struggle with the stomach. There's more, Jake said. He took the can and walked towards the rear of the stable. He paused and smiled back at the gunslinger, and certainly the gunslinger nodded at him, and then he put his head down and propped it with his hands. The boy was well made, handsome, perhaps ten or eleven. There had been a shadow of fear on his face, but that was all right. The gunslinger would have trusted him far less if the boy hadn't shown fear. A strange, thumping hum began at the rear of the stable. The gunslinger raised his head, alertly, hands going to the butts of his guns. The sound lasted for perhaps fifteen seconds and then quit. The boy came back with the can, filled now. The gunslinger drank sparingly again, and this time was a little better. 
The ache in his head was fading. I didn't know what to do with you when you fell down, Jake said. For a couple of seconds there, I thought you were going to shoot me. Maybe I was. I thought you were somebody else. The priest? The gunslinger looked up sharply. The boy steadied him, frowning. He camped in the yard. I was in the house over there, or maybe it was a depot. I didn't like him, so I didn't come out. He came in the night and went on the next day. I would have hidden from you, but I was sleeping when you came. He looked darkly over the gunslinger's head. I don't like people. They fuck me up. What did he look like? The boy shrugged. Like a priest. He was wearing black things. A hood and cassock? What's a cassock? A robe? Like a dress? The boy nodded. That's about right. The gunslinger leaned forward, and something in his face made the boy recoil a little. How long ago? Tell me, for your father's sake. I, I, patiently the gunslinger said, I'm not going to hurt you. I don't know. I can't remember time. Every day is the same. For the first time, the gunslinger wondered consciously how the boy had come to this place, with dry and man-killing leagues of desert all around it, but he would not make it as concerned, not yet at least. Make your best guess. Long ago? No, not long. I haven't been here long. The fire lit in him again. He snatched up the can and drank from it with hands that trembled the smallest bit. A fragment of cradle song recurred, but this time, instead of his mother's face, he saw the scarfed face of Alice, who had been his jilly in the now-defunct town of Toll. A week? Two? Three? The boy looked at him distractedly. Yes? Which? A week? Or two? He looked aside, blushing a little. Three poops ago. But that's the only way I can measure things now. He didn't even drink. I thought he might be the ghost of a priest, like in this movie I saw once, only Zoro figured out he wasn't a priest at all, or a ghost either. He was just a banker who wanted some land because there was gold on it. Mrs. Shaw took me to see that movie. It was in Times Square. None of this made any sense to the gunslinger, so he did not comment on it. I was scared, the boy said. I've been scared almost all the time. His face quivered like a crystal on the edge of the ultimate destructive high note. He didn't even build a fire. He just sat there. I don't even know if he went to sleep. Close. Closer than he had ever been. By the gods, in spite of his extreme dehydration, his hands felt faintly moist, greasy. There's some dried meat, the boy said. All right, the gunslinger nodded. Good. The boy got up to fetch it, his knees popping slightly. He made a fine, straight figure. The desert had not yet sapped him. His arms were thin, but the skin, although tanned, had not dried and cracked. He's got juice, the gunslinger thought. Mayhap some sand in his craw as well. Or he would have taken one of my guns and shot me right where I lay. Or perhaps the boy simply hadn't thought of it. The gunslinger drank from the can again. Sand in his craw or not, he didn't come from this place. Jake came back with a pile of dried jerky on what looked like a sun-scorched breadboard. The meat was tough, stringy, and salty, enough to make the cankered lining of the gunslinger's mouth sing. He ate and drank until he felt logy, then settled back. The boy ate only a little, picking at the dark strands with an odd delicacy. The gunslinger regarded him, and the boy looked back at him candidly enough. "'Where did you come from, Jake?' 
he asked finally. I don't know, the boy frowned. I did know when I came here, but it's all fuzzy now, like a bad dream when you wake up. I've had lots of bad dreams. Mrs. Shaw used to say it was because I watched too many horror movies on Channel 11. What's Channel? A wild idea occurred to him. Is it like a beam? No, it's TV. What's TV? I, the boy touched his forehead. Pictures. Did someone tote you here, this Mrs. Shaw? No, the boy said. I was, I was just here. Who is Mrs. Shaw? I don't know. Why did she call you Banna? I don't remember. You're not making any sense, the gunslinger said flatly. Quite suddenly, the boy was on the verge of tears. I can't help it. I was just here. If you asked me about TV and channels yesterday, I bet I still could have remembered. Tomorrow, probably won't even remember I'm Jake. Not unless you tell me. And you won't be here, will you? You're going to go away, and I'll starve because you ate up almost all my food. I didn't ask to be here. I don't like it. It's spooky. Don't feel so sorry for yourself. Make do. I didn't ask to be here, the boy repeated with bewildered defiance. The gunslinger ate another piece of the meat, chewing the salt out of it before swallowing. The boy had become a part of it, and the gunslinger was convinced he told the truth. He had not asked for it. It was too bad. He himself, he had asked for it. But he had not asked for the game to become this dirty. He had not asked to turn his guns on the townsfolk of Tall. He had not asked to shoot Allie, with her sadly pretty face at the end marked by the secret she had finally asked to be let on. Using that word, that nineteen, like a key in a lock, had not asked to be faced with a choice between duty and flat-out murder. It was not fair to ring in innocent bystanders and make them speak lines they didn't understand on a strange stage. Allie, he thought, Allie was at least part of this world in her own self-illusionary way, but this boy, this goddamn boy. Tell me what you can remember, he told Jake. It's only a little. It doesn't seem to make sense anymore. Tell me, maybe I can pick up the sense. The boy thought about how to begin. He thought about it very hard. There was a place... The one before this one, a high place with lots of rooms and a patio where you could look out at a tall buildings and, and water, and there was a statue that stood in the water. A statue in the water? Yes, a lady with a crown and a torch and, and I think a book. Are you making this up? I guess I must be, the boy said hopelessly. There were things to ride in on the streets, big ones and little ones, and the big ones were blue and white, and the little ones were yellow, and a lot of yellow ones, and I walked to school. There were cement paths besides the streets, and windows to look in on, and more statues wearing clothes. The statues sold the clothes. I know it sounds crazy, but the statues, they sold the clothes. They sold us the clothes. The gunslinger shook his head and looked for a lie on the boy's face. He saw none. I walked to school, the boy repeated doggedly, and I had a, his eyes tilted close, and his lips moment moved gropingly. A brown book bag. I carried a lunch and I wore the groping again, agonized groping. A tie? A cravat? I don't know. The boy made a slow, unconscious clenching motion at his throat, one the gunslinger associated with hanging. I don't know. It's just all gone. And he looked away. May I put you to sleep? The gunslinger asked. 
I'm not sleepy. I can make you sleepy, and I can make you remember. Doubtfully, Jake asked, How could you do that? With this. The gunslinger removed one of the shells from his gun belt and twirled it in his fingers. The movement was dexterous, as flowing as oil. The shell cart rolled effortlessly from thumb to index to index and second to second and ring to ring and pinky. It popped out of sight and reappeared, seemed to float briefly, then reversed. The shawl walked across the gunslinger's fingers. The fingers themselves marched as his feet had marched on the last few miles to this place. The boy watched, his initial doubt first replaced with plain delight, then by raptness, then by dawning blankness as he opened. His eyes slipped shut. The shell danced back and forth. Jake's eyes opened again, caught the steady, limpid movement between the gunslinger's fingers a little while longer, and then they closed once more. The gunslinger continued to hug him, but, the, but Jake's eyes did not open again. The boy breathed with slow and steady calmness. Did this have to be a part of it? Yes, it did. There was a certain cold beauty to it, like lace frettings that fringed the hard blue ice packs. He once more seemed to hear his mother singing, not the nonsense about the rain in Spain this time, but sweeter nonsense coming from a great distance as he rocked on the rim of sleep. Baby bunting, baby dear, baby bring your basket here. Not for the first time the gunslinger tasted the smooth, loden's taste of soul sickness. The shell in his fingers manipulated with such unknown grace was suddenly horrific. The spore of a monster. He dropped it into his palm, made a fist, and squeezed it with painful force. Had it exploded in that moment, he would have rejoiced at the destruction of his talented hand. For its only true talent was murder. But there had been murder in the world. There had always been murder in the world. But telling himself so was no comfort. There was murder, there was rape. There were unspeakable practices, and all of them were for the good, the bloody good, the bloody myth, for the grail, for the tower. Ah, the tower stood somewhere in the middle of things, so they did say, rearing its black-gray bulk to the sky. And in his desert-scoured ears, the gunslinger heard the faint, sweet sound of his mother's voice, Chesset, 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 bring enough to fill your basket. He brushed the song and the sweetness of the song aside. Where are you? he asked. Jake Chambers, sometimes Bama, is going downstairs with his book bag. There is earth science, there is geography, and there is a notepad, a pencil, and a lunch his mother's cook. Mrs. Grittishaw has made for him, and the chrome and formica kitchen, where a fan whirs eternally, sucking up alien odors. In his lunch sack, he has peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a bologna, lettuce, and onion sandwich, and four Oreo cookies. His parents do not hate him, but they do seem to have overlooked him. They have abdicated and left him to Mrs. Grittishaw, to nannies, to a tutor in the summer, and to the piper school which is private and nice, and most of all, white. The rest of the time, none of these people have ever pretended to be more than what they are, 
professional people, the best in their field. None have folded him to a particularly warm bosom, as usually happens in the historical romance novels his mother reads, and which Jake has dipped into, looking for the hot parts. Hysterical novels, his father sometimes calls them, and sometimes bodice rippers. You should talk, his mother says with infinite scorn behind some of the closed doors where Jake listens. His father works for the network, and Jake could pick him out of a lineup of skinny men with crew cuts. Probably. Jake does not know that he hates all professional people, but Mrs. Shaw. People have always bewildered him. His mother, who is scrawny in a sexy way, often goes to bed with sick friends. His father sometimes talks about the people at the network who are doing too much Coca-Cola. This statement is always accompanied by a humorless grin and a quick little sniff of his thumbnail. Now he is on the street. Jake Chambers is on the street. He has hit the bricks. He is clean and well-mannered, comely, sensitive. He bowls once a week at Midtown Lanes. He has no friends, only acquaintances. He has never bothered to think about this, but it hurts him. He does not know or understand that a long association with professional people has called him to take on many of their traits. Mrs. Grittishaw, better than the rest of them, but gosh, is that ever a consolation prize, makes very professional sandwiches. She quarters them and cuts off the bread crusts so that when he eats in gym period four, he looks like he ought to be at a cocktail party with a drink in his other hand. Instead of the sports novel or a Clay Blaisdell western from the school library. His father makes a great deal of money because he is a master of the kill that is, placing a stronger show on his network against a weaker show on a rival network. His father smokes four packs of cigarettes a day. His father does not cough, but he has a hard grin, and he's not adverse to the occasional shot of the old Coca-Cola. Down the street, his mother leaves cab fare, but he walks every day, it doesn't rain, swinging his book bag and sometimes his bowling bag, although mostly he leaves it in his locker. A small boy who looks very American with his blonde hair and blue eyes. Girls have already begun to notice him with their mother's approval, and he does not shy away with skittish little boy arrogance. He talks to them with unknowing professionalism and puzzles them away. He likes geography and bowling in the afternoon. His father owns stock in a company that makes automatic pin-setting machinery, but Midtown Lanes do not use does not use his father's brand. He does not think he has thought about this, but he has. Walking down the street, he passes Bloomies, where the models stand dressed in fur coats and six-buttoned Edwardian suits, some in nothing at all. Some are bare naked. These models, these mannequins, are perfectly professional, and he hates all professionalism. He is too young to learn to hate himself yet, that seed is already there, and given time it will grow and bear bitter fruit. He comes to the corner and stands with his book bag at his side. The traffic roars by, grunting blue and white buses, yellow taxis, Volkswagens, a large truck. He is just a boy, but not average, and he sees the man who kills him out of the corner of his eye. It is the man in black and he doesn't see the face, only the swirling robe, the outstretched hands, and the hard professional grin.
He falls into the street with his arms outstretched, not letting go of the book bag, which contains Mrs. Grittishaw's extremely professional lunch. There is a brief glance through a polarized windshield at the horrified face of a businessman wearing a dark blue hat and the band of which is a small jaunty feather. Somewhere a radio is blasting rock and roll. An old woman on the far curb screams. She is wearing a black hat with a net. Nothing jaunty about that black net. It's like a mourner's veil. Jake feels nothing but surprise and his unusual sense of headlong bewilderment. Is this how it ends? Before he's bowled better than 270, he lands hard in a street and looks at an asphalt-sealed cracked some two inches from his eyes. The book bag is jolted from his hand. He is wondering if he has skinned his knees when the car belonging to the businessman wearing the blue hat with the jaunty feather passes over him. It is a big blue 1976 Cadillac with white wire wall firestone tires. The car is almost exactly the same color as the businessman's hat. It breaks Jake's back, mushes his guts to gravy, sends blood from his mouth in a high-pressure jet. He turns his head and sees the Cadillac's flaming taillights and spoke, smoke spurting from beneath its locked rear wheels. The car has also run over his book bag and left a wide black tread on it. He turns his head the other way and sees a large gray Ford screaming to a stop inches from his body. A black fellow who has been selling pretzels and soda from a pushcart is coming towards him on the full run. Blood rushes from Jake's nose, ears, eyes, rectum. His genitals have been squashed. He wonders irritably how badly he's skinned his knees. He wonders if he'll be late for school. Now the driver of the Cadillac is running towards him, babbling, and somewhere a terrible calm voice, the voice of doom, says, I am a priest. Let me through. An act of contrition. He sees the black robe and knows sudden horror. It is him, the man in black. Jake turns his face away with the last of his strength. Somewhere a radio is playing a song by the rock group Kiss. He sees his own hand trailing on the pavement, small, white, shapely. He has never bitten his nails. Looking at his hand, Jake dies. The gunslinger hunkered down in frowning thought. He was tired. His body ached and thoughts came with aggravating slowness. Across from him, the amazing boy slept with his hands folded in his lap, still breathing calmly. He had told his tale without much emotion, although his voice had trembled near the end. And when he had come to the part about the priest in an act of contrition, he had not, of course, told the gunslinger about his family and his own sense of bewildered dichotomy that had seeped through anyway, enough for the gunslinger to make out its shape. The fact that there had never been such a city as the boy described, unless it was the mythic city of Lud, was not the most upsetting part of the story, but it was disturbing. It was all disturbing. The gunslinger was afraid of the implications. Jake? Uh-huh. Do you want to remember this when you wake up, or forget it? Forget it, the boy said promptly. When the blood came out of my mouth, I could taste my own shit. All right. You're going to sleep, understand? Real sleep now. Go ahead and lie over, if it do you please. 
Jake laid over, looking small and peaceful and harmless. The gunslinger did not believe he was harmless. There was a deadly feeling about him, the stink of yet another trap. He didn't like the feeling, but he liked the boy. He liked him a great deal. Jake, shh, I'm sleeping. I want to sleep. Yes, and when you wake up, you won't remember any of this. Okay, good. The gunslinger watched him for a brief time, thinking of his own boyhood, which usually seemed to have happened to another person, to a person who had leaped through some fabulous lens of time to become someone else, but which now seemed poignantly close. It was very hot in the stables of the way station, and he carefully drank some more water. He got up and walked to the back of the building, pausing to look at one of the horse stalls. There was a small pile of white hay in the corner, and a neatly folded blanket, but there was no smell of horse. There was no smell of anything in the stable. The sun had bled every smell and left nothing. The air was perfectly neutral. At the back of the stable was a small, dark room with a stainless steel machine in the center. It was untouched by rust or rot. It looked like a butter churn. At the left, a chrome pipe jutted from it terminating over a drain in the floor. The gunslinger had seen pumps like it in other dry places, but never one so big. He could not contemplate how deep they, some long ago they, must have drilled before they struck water, secret and forever black under the desert. Why hadn't they removed the pump when the way station had been abandoned? Demons, perhaps. He shuddered abruptly, an abrupt twisting of his back. Heat flesh poked out on the skin, then receded. He went back. He went to the control switch and pushed the on button. The machine began to hum. After perhaps a minute, a steam of cool water, clean water, bleached from the pipe and went down the drain to be recirculated. Perhaps three gallons flowed out of the pipe before the pump shut itself down with the final click. It was a thing as alien to this place and this time as true love and yet concrete as a judgment, a silent reminder of a time when the world had not yet moved on. It probably ran on an atomic slug, as there were no electricity within a thousand miles of here, and even dry batteries would have lost their charge long ago. It had been made by a company called North Central Positronics. The gunslinger didn't like it. He went back and sat down beside the boy, who had put one hand under his cheek, nice-looking boy. The gunslinger drank some more water and crossed his legs so he was sitting Indian fashion. The boy, like the squatter on the edge of the desert who kept the bird, Zoltan, the gunslinger remembered abruptly. The bird's name was Zoltan, had lost his sense of time, but the fact that the man in black was closer seemed beyond doubt. Not for the first time, the gunslinger wondered if the man in black was letting him catch up for some reason of his own. Perhaps the gunslinger was playing into his hands. He tried to imagine what the confrontation might be like, and could not. He was very hot, but no longer felt sick. The nursery rhyme occurred to him again, but this time, instead of his mother, he thought of Court. Court, an ageless engine of a man, his face stitched with the scars of bricks and bullets and blunt instruments, the scars of war and instruction and the arts of war. 
He wondered if Court had ever had a love to match those monumental scars. He doubted it. He thought of Susan and his mother and of Martin, that incomplete enchanter. The gunslinger was not a man to dwell on the past, only shadowy conception of the future and his own emotional makeup saved him from being a man without imagination, a dangerous dullard. His present ran of thought, therefore, rather amazed him. Each name called up others, Cuthbert, Elaine, the old man Jonas with his quavery voice, and again Susan, the lovely girl at the window. Such thoughts always came back to Susan, and the great rolling plain known as the Drop, and the fishermen cash casting their nets in the bays on the edge of the clean sea. The piano player in Tull also did, all did in Tull, and by his hand had known those places, although he and the gunslinger had only spoken of them that once. Shep had been fond of the old songs, had once played them in a saloon called the Traveler's Rest, and the gunslinger hummed one tunelessly under his breath. Love, oh love, oh careless love, see what careless love's done. The gunslinger laughed, bemused. I am one of the last of that green and warm-hued world and for all his nostalgia he felt no self-pity. The world had moved on mercilessly, but his legs were still strong, and the man in black was closer. The gunslinger nodded out. All right, so we have read a little bit, and I'm going to take a small break here. And so we have met a new character by the name of Jake. Chambers, or John Chambers, um, nicknamed Jake, and we know that he is from a place called New York, and we know what New York is. The gunslinger does not, so he's trying to puzzle this boy out, and it's very troubling to him. So, at this point, um, he has memory regressed Jake into telling him his story and it is a form of hypnotism. And he has got the story out of Jake, and he's kind of contemplating what he's heard. And this contemplation has brought up other thoughts, and so we're kind of getting a glimpse into the gunslinger's mindset. So I'm going to take a small break, and when I get back, we will continue on our story and see how much further we get with Jake and the gunslinger, or Roland. So, I'll be back in just a bit, and thank you for listening. Alright, stay tuned. <laughs> Bye. Hi, and welcome back. I just got back from my little break, and we're going to continue on with the gunslinger. And when we had just completed our last reading, uh, we were talking about, or rather Stephen King had written about, uh, Roland and Jake having had a conversation. And at this point, he's still kind of reflecting on some old things that have happened. And Jake um, is now sleeping after being hypnotized. And he had told a rather disturbing story of how he thought he came to be at the way station where Roland has 
found him. So we now know that Jake is from New York City, or so he remembers, and that a man looking like a priest pushed him into a street where he was run over by a car, and literally the last person that he saw, or the last eyes he looked into, were the man in black's, um, or was his face, as he was uh, dying in the street, and so, you know, he's he's told the gunslinger this this story. So, the gunslinger is not familiar with New York or this city, and he talks about another mythic city called Ludd, um, that's probably the only comparable place to what Jake is talking about that Roland can identify with. So, we will continue on. Jake is sleeping. Uh, Roland is thinking about his past and about the man in black and even about the boy and, and some different things. And we are going forward, so let's continue. When he awoke, it was almost dark and the boy was gone. The gunslinger got up, hearing his joints pop, and went to the stable door. There was a small flame dancing in the darkness on the porch of the inn. He walked toward it, his shuttle long and black and trailing in the reddish ochred light of sunset. Jake was sitting by a kerosene lamp. The oil was in the drum, the boy said. But I was scared to burn it in the house. Everything's so dry. You did just right, the gunslinger sat down, seeing but not thinking about the dust of years that puffed up around his rump. He thought it something of a wonder that the porch didn't simply collapse beneath their combined weight. The flame from the lamp shadowed the boy's face with delicate tones. The gunslinger produced his poke and rolled a cigarette. We have to palaver, he said. Jake nodded, smiling a little at the word. I guess you know I'm on the prod for the man that you saw. Are you going to kill him? I don't know. I have to make him tell me something. I may have to make him take me someplace. Where? To find a tower, the gunslinger said. He held his cigarette over the chimney of the lamp and drew on it. The smoke drifted away on the rising night breeze. Jake watched it. His face neither fear showed neither fear nor curiosity, certainly not enthusiasm. So I'm going on tomorrow, the gunslinger said. You'll have to come with me. How much of that meat is left? Only a little? Corn? A little more? The gunslinger nodded. Is there a cellar? Yes. Jake looked at him. The pupil of his eyes had grown to a huge, fragile size. You'll pull up on a ring on the floor, but I didn't go down. I was afraid of the ladder and that it would break and I, I wouldn't be able to get up again. And it smells bad. It's the only thing around here that smells at all. We'll get up early and see if there's anything down there worth taking. Then we'll go. All right, the boy paused and then said, I'm glad I didn't kill you when you were sleeping. I had a pitchfork, and I thought about doing it, but I didn't, and now I won't have to be afraid to go to sleep. What would you have to be afraid of? The boy looked at him ominously. Spooks. Of him coming back? The man in black, the gunslinger said, not a question. Yes. Is he a bad man? I guess that depends on where you're standing, the gunslinger said absently. He got up and pitched his cigarette out into the hard pan. I'm going to sleep. The boy looked at him timidly. Can I sleep in a stable with you? Of course. 
The gunslinger stood on the steps, looking up, and the boy joined him. Old Star was up there, and Old Mother. It seemed to the gunslinger that if he closed his eyes, he would be able to hear the croaking of the first spring peepers, the smell of the green, the almost summer smell of the court lawns after their first cutting, and hear, perhaps, the indolent click of wooden balls as the ladies of the east wing, attired only in their shifts as dust glimmered towards dark plate points could almost see Cuthbert and Jamie as they came through the break in the hedges, calling for him to ride out with them. It was not like him to think so much of the past. He turned back and picked up the lamp. Let's go to sleep, he said. They crossed to the stable together. The next morning he explored the cellar. Jake was right. It smelled bad. It had a wet, swampy stench that made the gunslinger feel nauseous and a little light-headed after the antiseptic odorlessness of the desert and the stable. The cellar smelled of cabbages and turnips and potatoes with long, sightless eyes gone to everlasting rot. The latter, however, seemed quite sturdy, and he climbed down. The floor was earthen, and his head almost touched the overhead beams. Down here the spiders still lived, disturbingly big ones with mottled gray bodies. They were muties. The true thread long lost. Some had eyes on stalks. Some had what might have been as many as sixteen legs. The gunslinger peered around and waited for his night eyes. You all right? Jake called down nervously. Yes, he focused on the corner. There are cans. Wait. He went carefully to the corner, ducking his head. There was an old box with one folded down. With one side folded down, the cans were vegetables, green beans, yellow beans, and three cans of corned beef. He scooped up an arm load and went back to the ladder. He climbed halfway up and handed them to Jake, who knelt to receive them. He went back for more. It was on his third trip that he heard the groaning and the foundations. He turned, looked, and felt a dreamy kind of terror wash over him a feeling both languid and repellent. The foundation was composed of huge sandstone blocks that had probably been evenly cornered when the way station was new, but were now at every zigzag, drunken angle. It made the wall look as if it were inscribed with strange meandering hieroglyphics, and from the joining of two of these obtruse cracks a thin spill of sand was running, as if something on the other side was digging itself through with slobbering, agonized intensity. The groaning rose and fell, becoming louder until the whole cellar was full of the sound, an abstract noise of ripping pain and dreadful effort. "'Come up!' Jake screamed. "'Oh, Jesus, mister, come up!' "'Go away,' the gunslinger said calmly. "'Wait outside. "'If I don't come up by the time you count to two, "'no, three hundred, get the hell out!' "'Come up!' Jake screamed again. "'The gunslinger didn't answer. "'He pulled leather with his right hand. "'There was a hole as big as a coin in the wall now. "'He could hear through the curtain of his own terror, "'Jake's pattering feet as the boy ran.' The spill of sand stopped. The groaning ceased, but there was a sound of steady, labored breathing. "'Who are you?' the gunslinger asked. No answer. And in the high speech, his voice filling with the old thunder of command, Roland demanded, "'Who are you, demon? Speak, if you would speak. My time is short, my patience shorter.' "'Go slow.' 
a dragging, clotted voice said from within the wall, and a gunslinger felt the dreamlike terror deepen and grow almost solid. It was the voice of Alice, the woman he had stayed with in the town of Toll, but she was dead. He had seen her go down himself, a bullet hole between her eyes. Phantoms seemed to swim by his eyes, descending. Go past the doors, go slow past the doors, gunslinger. Watch for the tain. While you travel with the boy, the man in black travels with your soul in his pocket. What do you mean? Speak on. The breathing, but the breathing was gone. The gunslinger stood for a moment, frozen, and then one of the huge spiders dropped on his arm and scrambled frantically up to his shoulder. With an involuntary grunt, he brushed it away and got his feet moving. He did not want to do the next thing, but custom was strict and viable. Take the dead from the dead, the old proverb said. Only a corpse may speak true prophecy. He went to the hole and punched at it. The sandstone crumbled easily at the edges, and with a bare stiffening of muscles he thrust his hand through the wall and touched something solid. With raised and fretted knobs, he drew it out. He held a jawbone, rotted at the far hinge. The teeth leaned this way and that. All right, he said softly. He thrust it rudely into his back pocket and went back up the cellar, carrying the last of the cans awkwardly. He'd left the trap door open. The sun would get in and kill the beauty spiders. Jake was halfway across the stable yard, cowering on the cracked, rubbly hard pan. He screamed when he saw the gunslinger, backed away a strip or two, and then ran to him, crying, I thought it got you. I thought, I thought it got you. I thought it didn't. Nothing got me. He held the boy to him, feeling his face hot against his chest and his hands dry against his ribcage. He could feel the rapid beating of the boy's heart, and it occurred to him later that this is when he began to love the boy, which was, of course, what the man in black must have planned all along. Was there ever a trap to match the trap of love? Was it a demon? The voice was muffled. Yes, a speaking demon. We don't have to go back there any more. Come on, let's shake a mile. They went to the stable, and a gunslinger made a rough pack from the blanket he'd slept under. It was hot and prickly, but there was nothing else. That done, he filled the water bags from the pump. You carry one of the water bags, the gunslinger said. Wear it around your shoulders. See? Yes. The boy looked up at him worshipfully. The look quickly masked. He slung one of the bags over his shoulders. Is it too heavy? No, it's fine. Tell me the truth now. I can't cure you if you get a sunstroke. I won't have a sunstroke. I'll be okay. The gunslinger nodded. We're going to the mountains, aren't we? Yes. They walked out into the steady smash of the sun. Jake, his head high as the swing of the gunslinger's elbows, walked to his right and a little ahead, the rawhide wrapped ends of the water bag hanging nearly to his shins. The gunslinger had crisscrossed two more water bags across his shoulders and carried the sling of food in his armpit his left arm holding it against his body in his right hand was his pack his poke and the rest of his gunna they passed through the far gate of the way station and found the blurred ruts of the stage track again they walked perhaps fifteen minutes when jake turned around and waved at the two buildings they seemed to huddle in the titanic space of the desert 
Goodbye, Jake cried. Goodbye, and then he turned back to the gunslinger, looking troubled. I felt like something's watching us. Something or someone, the gunslinger agreed. Was someone hiding there? Hiding there all along? I don't know. I don't think so. Should we go back? Go back in? No. We're done with that place. Good, said Jink feverently. They walked. The stage track breasted frozen sand rumbling, and when the gunslinger looked around, the way station was gone. Once again, there was the desert, and only that. It was three days out of the way station. The mountains were deceptively clear now. They could see the smooth, steeped rise of the desert into foothills, foothills, the first naked slopes, the bedrock bursting through the skin of the earth in sullen, eroded triumph. Further up, the land jumbled off briefly again, and for the first time in months or years, the gunslinger could see real living green. Grass, dwarf spruces, perhaps even willows, all fed by snow runoff from further up. Beyond that, rock took over again, rising to cyclopean tumbled splendor all along to the blinding snow caps. Off to the left, a huge slash showed the way to the smaller eroded sandstone cliffs and the mesas and the buttes on the far side. This draw was obscured in the almost continual gray membrane of showers. At night, Jake would sit fascinated for the few minutes before he fell into sleep, watching the brilliant swordplay of the far-off spinning lightning, white and purple, startling in the clarity of the night air. The boy was fine on the trail. He was tough. But more than that, he seemed to fight exhaustion with the calm reservoir of will which the gunslinger appreciated and admired. He didn't talk much, and he didn't ask questions, not even about the jawbone, which the gunslinger turned over and over in his hands during his evening smoke. He caught a sense that the boy felt highly flattered by the gunslinger's companionship, perhaps even exalted by it, and this disturbed him. The boy had been placed in his path. While you travel with the boy, the man in black travels with your soul in his pocket. And the fact that Jake was not showing, slowing him down only opened the way to more sinister possibilities. They passed the symmetrical campfire leavings of the man in black at regular intervals, and it seemed to the gunslinger that these leavings were much fresher now. On the third night, the gunslinger was sure he could see the distant spark of another campfire, somewhere in the first rising swell of the foothills. This did not please him as much as he might have once believed. One of court saying occurred to him, "'Where the man who fakes a limp?' Near two o'clock on the fourth day out from the way station, Jake reeled and almost fell. "'Here, sit down,' the gunslinger said. "'No, I'm okay.' sit down. The boy sat obediently. The gunslinger squatted close by so Jake would be in his shadow. Drink. I'm not supposed to until drink. The boy drank. Three swallows. The gunslinger with the tail of the blanket, which held a good deal less now, and applied the damp fabric to the boy's wrists and forehead, which were fever dry. From now on, we rest every afternoon at this time. Fifteen minutes. Do you want to sleep? No. The boy looked at him with shame, and the gunslinger looked back blandly. In an abstract way, he withdrew one of the bullets from his belt and began to twirl it, hooking between his fingers, and the boy watched, fascinated. That's neat, he said. The gunslinger 
nodded. Yar, he passed. He paused. When I was your age, I lived in a walled city. Did I tell you that? The boy shook his head sleepily. Sure, and there was an evil man. The priest? Well, sometimes I wonder about that, tell you true, the gunslinger said. If there were two, I think now they must have been brothers, maybe even twins. But did I ever see them together? No, I, I never did. This bad man, this Martin, he was a wizard, like Merlin. Do they kin Merlin where you come from? Merlin and Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Jake said dreamily. The gunslinger felt a nasty jolt go through him. Yes, he said. Arthur Eld, you say true, I say thank you. I was very young. But the boy was asleep, sitting up, his hands folded neatly in his lap. Jake, yar. The sound of this word from the boy's mouth startled him badly, but the gunslinger wouldn't let his voice show it. When I snap my fingers, you'll wake up. You'll be rested and fresh. Do you ken it? Yes. Lie over then. The gunslinger got makings from his poke and rolled a cigarette. There was something missing. He searched for it in his diligent, careful way and located it. The missing thing was his previous maddening sense of hurry, the feeling that he might be left behind at any time, that the trill would die out and he would be left only with a last fading footprint. All of that was gone now, and the gunslinger was slowly becoming sure that the man in black wanted to be caught. Where the man who fakes a limp? Who would follow? The question was too vague to catch his interest. Cuthbert would have found interest in it, lively interest, and probably a joke. But Cuthbert was as gone as the horn of Duchesne, and the gunslinger could only go forward in the way he knew. He watched the boy as he smoked, his mind turned back on Cuthbert, who had always laughed. To his death he had gone laughing, and Court, who never laughed, and on Martin sometimes smiled, a thin, silent smile that had its own disquieting gleam, like an eye that slips open in the dark and discloses blood. And there had been a falcon, of course, the falcon named David, after the legend of the boy with the sling. David, he was quite sure, knew nothing but the need for murder, rending, and terror. Like the gunslinger himself, David was a dilettante. He played the center of the court, except maybe at the end. The gunslinger's stomach seemed to rise painfully against his heart, but his face didn't change. He watched the smoke of a cigarette rise into the hot desert air and disappear, and his mind went back. The sky was white, perfectly white, the smell of strong rain strong in the air, and the smell of hedges and growing green was sweet. It was deep spring in what some called New Earth. David sat on Cuthbert's arm, a small engine of destruction, with bright golden eyes that glared out toward nothing. At the rawhide leash attached to his jesses was slipped carelessly about Bert's arm. Court stood, aside from the two boys, a silent figure in patched leather trousers and a green cotton shirt that had been cinched high with his old, wide infantry, infantry belt. The green of his shirt merged with the hedges and the rolling turf off the black courts, the back courts where the ladies had not yet begun to play at points. Get ready, Roland whispered to Cuthbert. We're ready, Cuthbert said confidently. Aren't we, Davy? 
They spoke the low speech, the language of both scullions and squires. A day, the day, would come. The day when they would be allowed to use their own tongue in the presence of others was still far off. It's a beautiful day for it. Can you smell it? The rain, it's court abruptly raised the trap in his hands and let the slide fall open. The dove was up and out, flying for the sky in a quick, fluttering blast of its wings. Cuthbert pulled the leash, but he was slow. The hawk was already up, and his takeoff was awkward. The hawk recovered with a brief twitch of its wings. It sprang upward, trudging the air, gaining altitude over the dove, moving bullet swift. Court walked over to where the boy stood, casually, and swung his huge and twisted fist at Cuthbert's ear. The boy fell over without a sound, though his lips writhed back from his gums. A trickle of blood flowed slowly from his ear and onto the rich green grass. You were slow, maggot. Cuthbert was struggling to his feet. I cry your pardon, Court. It's just that I... Court swung again, and Cuthbert fell over again. The blood flowed more swiftly now. Speak thy speech, he said softly. His voice was flat, with a slight drunken rasp. Speak your act of contrition and the speech of civilization for which better men than you will ever be have died, maggot. Cuthbert was getting up again. Tears stood brightly in his eyes, but his lips were pressed together in a tight line of hate which did not quiver. I grieve, Cuthbert said in a voice, breathless control. I have forgotten the face of my father, whose guns I hope to some day bear. That's right, brat, Court said. You'll consider what you did wrong, and sharpen your reflections with hunger. No supper, no breakfast. Look, Roland cried. He pointed up. The hawk had climbed above the soaring dove. It glided for a moment, its stubby wings outstretched and without movement on the still, white spring air. Then it folded its wings and dropped like a stone. The two bodies came together, and for a moment Roland fancied he could see blood in the air. The hawk gave a brief scream of triumph. The dove fluttered, twisting to the ground, and Roland ran toward the kill, leaving Court and the chastened Cuthbert behind him. The hawk landed beside its prey and was complacently tearing into its plump white breast. A few feathers seesawed slowly downward. David, the boy yelled, and tossed the hawk a piece of rabbit flesh from his poke. The hawk caught it on the fly, ingested it, with an upward shaking of its back and throat, and Roland attempted to relash the bird. The hawk whirled, almost absent-mindedly, and ripped the skin from Olin's, Roland's arm in a long, dangling gash, then went back to its meal. With a grunt, Roland looped the leash again, this time catching David's diving, flashing beak on the leather gauntlet he wore. He gave the hawk another piece of meat, then hooded it. Docilely, David climbed onto his wrist. He stood up proudly, the hawk on his arm. "'What's this, can you tell me?' Cord asked, pointing to the dripping slash on Roland's forearm. The boy stationed himself to receive the blow, locking his throat against any possible cry, but no blow fell. He struck me, Roland said. You pissed him off, Court said. The hawk does not fear you, boy. The hawk never will. The hawk is God's gunslinger. Roland merely looked at Court. He was not an imaginative boy. And if Court had intended to imply a moral, it was lost on him. He went so far as to believe that it might have been one of the few foolish statements he had ever heard Court make. Cuthbert came up behind them and stuck his tongue out at court safely on his blind side. 
Roland did not smile, but nodded to him. "'Go in now,' Court said, taking the hawk. He turned and pointed at Cuthbert. "'But remember your reflection, maggot, and your fast, tomorrow. "'Tonight and tomorrow morning.' "'Yes,' Cuthbert said, stilted formally now. "'Thank you for this instructive day.' "'You learn,' Court said, "'but your tongue has a bad habit of lolling from your stupid mouth "'when your instructor's back is turned. "'Mayhap the day will come when it and you will learn their respective places.' He struck Cuthbert again, this time solidly between the eyes, and hard enough so that Roland heard a dull thud, the sound a mallet makes when a scullion taps a keg of bear. Court rolled backwards onto the lawn, his eyes cloudy and dazed at first, but then they cleared and he stared burningly up at Court, his unusual easy, his usual easy grin nowhere to be seen, his hatred unveiled. A pinprick as bright as the dove's blood in the center of each eye. He nodded and parted his lips in a scarifying smile that Roland had never seen. Then there's hope for you, Court said. When you think you can, you come for me, maggot. How did you know? Court said between his teeth. Court turned to Roland so swiftly that Roland almost fell back a step, and then both of them would have been on the grass decorating the new green with their blood. I saw it reflected in this maggot's eyes, he said. Remember it, Cuthbert, all good. Last lesson for today. Cuthbert nodded again, the same frightening smile on his face. I grieve, he said. I have forgotten the face. Cut that shit, Court said, losing interest. He turned to Roland. Go on now, both of you. If I have to look at your stupid maggot faces any longer, I'll puke my guts and lose a good dinner. Come on, Roland said. Cuthbert shook his head to clear it and got to his feet. Court was already walking down the hill in his squat, bow-legged stride, looking powerful and somehow prehistoric. The shaved and grizzled spot at the top of his head glimmered. "'I'll kill that son of a bitch,' Cuthbert said, still smiling. A large goose egg, purple and knotted, was rising mystically on his forehead. "'Not you or me,' Roland said, bursting into a grin. "'You can have supper in the West Kitchen with me. "'Cook will give us some. "'He'll tell Court.' "'He's no friend of Court's,' Roland said, and then shrugged. "'And what if he did?' "'Cuthbert grinned back. "'Sure, right. "'I always wanted to know how the world looked "'when your head was on backwards and upside down.' "'They started back together over the green grass lawns, "'casting shadows in the fine white spring light.' The cook in the West Kitchen was named Hax. He stood in food-stained whites, a man with a crude oil complexion, whose ancestry was a quarter black, a quarter yellow, and a quarter from the South Islands, now almost forgotten. The world had moved on. And a quarter of gods knew what. He shuffled about three high-ceilinged, steamy rooms like a tractor in low gear, wearing huge, caliph-like slippers. He was one of those quite rare adults who communicate with small children fairly well and who love them all impartially. Not in a sugary way, but in a business-like fashion that may sometimes entail a hug in the same way that closing a big business deal may call for a handshake. He even loved the boys who had begun the way of the gun although they were different from other children, undemonstrative and always slightly dangerous, not in an adult way, but rather as if they were ordinary children with a slight touch of madness, and Bart was not the first of court students who he had fed on the sly. 
At this moment, he stood in front of his large, rambling electric stove, one of six working appliances left on the whole estate. It was his personal domain, and he stood there watching the boys bolt the gravied meat scraps he had produced. Behind, before, and all around, cookboys, scullions, and various underlings rushed through the steaming, humid air, rattling pans, stirring stew, slaving over potatoes and vegetables and nether regions. In the dimly lit pantry alcove, a washerwoman with a doughy, miserable face and hair caught up in a rag splashed water around on the floor with a mop. One of the scullery boys rushed up with a man from the guards in tow. "'This man, he wants you, Hacks.' "'All right.' Hacks nodded to the guard, and he nodded back. "'You boys,' he said, "'go over to Maggie. She'll give you some pie, then scat. Don't get me in trouble.' Later they would both remember he'd said that. Don't get me in trouble. They nodded and went over to Maggie, who gave them huge wedges of pie on dinner plates, but gingerly, as if there were wild dogs that might bite her. Let's eat it under stairs, Cuthbert said. All right. They sat behind a huge, sweating stone colonnade, out of the sight of the kitchen, and gobbled their pie with their fingers. It was almost it was only moments later that they saw the shadows fall on the far curving wall on the side of the wide staircase. Roland grabbed Cuthbert's arm. Come on, he said. Someone's coming. Cuthbert looked up, his face surprised and berry stained. But the shadows stopped, still out of sight. It was Hacks and the man from the guards. The boys sat where they were. If they moved now, they might be heard. The good man, the guard was saying. Farson? In two weeks, the guard replied, maybe three. You have to come with us. There's a shipman from the freight depot. A particularly loud crash of pots and pans and a volley of catcalls directed at the hapless boy who dropped them blotted out some of the rest. But the guard, but the boys heard the guard finish. Poisoned meat. Risky. As not what the good man can do for you, the guard began. But what you can do for him, Hack sighed. Soldier, ask not. "'You know what it could mean,' the guard said quietly. "'Yar, and I know more responsibilities to him. "'You don't need to lecture me. "'I love him just as you do. "'Would follow him into the sea if he asked, so I would. "'All right. "'The meat will be marked for short-term storage in the cold rooms. "'But you'll have to be quick. "'You understand that?' "'There are children in Taunton?' the cook asked. "'It was not really a question.' children everywhere, the guard said gently. It's the children we and he care about. Poison meat, such a strange way to care for children, Hacks uttered a heavy, whistling sigh. Will they curdle and hold their bellies and cry for their mamas? Suppose they will. It'll be like going to sleep, the guard said, but his voice was too confidently reasonable. Of course, Hacks said and laughed. You said it yourself, soldier. Ask not. Do you enjoy seeing children under the rule of the gun, where they could be under his hands, ready to start making a new world? Hacks did not reply. I go on duty in twenty minutes, the guard said, his voice once more calm. Give me a joint of mutton, and I'll pinch one of your young girls and make her giggle, and when I leave, my mutton will give no cramps to your belly, Robeson. Will you? The shadows moved away, and the voices were lost. I could have killed them, Roland thought, frozen and fascinated. 
who could have killed them both with my knife, slit their throats like hogs. He looked at his hands, now stained with gravy and berries as well as dirt from the day's lessons. Roland. He looked at Cuthbert. They looked at each other for a long moment in the fragment, semi-darkness, and a taste of warm despair rose in Roland's throat. He felt what might have been a sort of death, something as brutal and final as the death of the dove in the white sky over the game's fields. Hacks, he thought, bewildered. Hacks, who put a poultice on my leg that time. Hacks? And when his mind slapped closed, then his mind snapped closed, cutting the subject off. What he saw, even in Cuthbert's humorous, intelligent face, was nothing, nothing at all. Cuthbert's eyes were as flat as Hax's doom. In Cuthbert's eyes, it had already happened. He had fed them. They had gone under stairs to eat, and then Hax had brought the guard named Robeson to the wrong corner of the kitchen for their treasonous little tete-a-tete. Cow had worked as Cow sometimes did, and suddenly, as big as a stone rolling down a hillside, that was all. Cuthbert's eyes were the eyes of a gunslinger. Roland's father was only just back from the uplands, and he looked out of place amid the drapes and chiffon fripperies of the main receiving hall to which the boy had only lately been granted access as a sign of his apprenticeship. Stephen Deshane was dressed in black jeans and wore a blue work shirt. His cloak, dusty and streaked, torn to the lining in one place, was slung carelessly over his shoulder with no regard for the way it clashed with the elegance of the room. He was desperately thin, and the heavy handlebar mustache below his nose seemed to weigh his head down as he looked down at his son. The guns crisscrossed over the wings of his hips, hung at perfect angles for his hands, the worn sandal-grid grips looking dull and sleepy in this languid indoor light. The head cook, his father said softly, imagine it. The tracks that were blown upland at the railroad, the dead stock in Hendrickson, and perhaps even, imagine, imagine. He looked more closely at his son. It preys on you. Like the hawk, Roland said. It preys on you, he laughed, at the startling appropriateness of the image rather than any lightness of the situation. His father smiled. Yes, Roland said, I guess, I guess it preys on me. Cuthbert was with you, his father said. He will have told his father by now. Yes. You've, he fed both of you in court. Yes. And Cuthbert, does it prey on him, do you think? I don't know. Nor did he care. He was not concerned with how his feelings compared with those of others. It preys on you because you feel you've caused a man's death. Roland shrugged unwillingly, all at once not content with this probing of his motivations. Yet you told. Why? The boy's eyes widened. How could I not? Treason was... His father waved a hand curtly. If you did it for something as cheap as a schoolbook idea, you did it unworthily. I would rather you see all the Taunton poisoned. I didn't, the words jerked out of him violently. I wanted to kill them. Both of them, liars, black liars, snakes, they, go ahead, they hurt me, he finished defiant. They changed something, and it hurt, and I wanted to kill them for it. I wanted to kill them right there. 
His father nodded. That's crude, Roland, but not unworthy. Not moral, either. But it's not your place to be moral. In fact, he peered at his son, morals may always be beyond you. You're not quick like Cuthbert's or Vinay's boy. That's all right, though. It'll make you formidable. The boy felt both pleased and troubled by this. He'll... Oh, he'll hang. The boy nodded. I want to see it. The elder Deshane threw his head back and roared laughter, not as formidable as I thought. Or perhaps just stupid. He closed his mouth abruptly. An arm shot out and grabbed the boy's upper arm painfully. Roland grimaced but didn't flinch. His father peered at him steadily, and the boy looked back, although it was more difficult than hooding the hawk had been. All right, he said, thee may, and turned abruptly to go. Father, what? Do you know who they were talking about? Do you know who the good man is? His father turned back and looked at him speculatively. Yes, I think I do. If you caught him, Roland said in his thoughtful, near-plotting way, no one else like Cook would have to be neck-popped. His father smiled thinly. Perhaps not for a while, but in the end, someone always has to have his or her neck popped, as you so quaintly put it. The people demand it. Sooner or later, if there isn't a turncoat, the people make one. Yes, Roland said, grasping the concept instantly. It was one he never forgot. But if you got the good man, no, his father said flatly. Why not? Why wouldn't it end it? For a moment, a father, for a moment, his father seemed on the verge of saying why, but then shook his head. We've talked enough for now, I think. Go out from me. He wanted to tell his father not to forget his promise when the time came for Hax to step through the trap, but he was sensitive to his father's mood. He put his fist to his forehead, crossed one foot in front of the other, and bowed. Then he went out, closing the door quickly. He suspected that what his father wanted to do was fuck. He was aware that he and his mother father did that, and he was reasonably well informed as to how it was done. But the mental picture always condensed with thought that made him feel both uneasy and oddly guilty. Some years later, Susan would tell him the story, story of Oedipus, and he would absorb it in quiet thoughtfulness, thinking of the odd and bloody triangle formed by his mother, his father, and by Martin, known in some quarters as Farson, or the good man. Or perhaps it was a quadrangle, if one wished to add himself. I will continue reading. So now we have heard about treason, and we're going to continue reading on for a little bit further, and we're going to see what happens to Hacks. So let's keep going. Gallows Hill was on Taunton Road, which was nicely poetic. Cuthbert might have appreciated this, but Roland did not. He did appreciate the splendidly, splendidly ominous scaffold, which climbed into the brilliantly blue sky, an angular silhouette which overhung the coach road. The two boys had lit out the mooring, had been lit out of morning exercises. Court had read the notes from their fathers laboriously, lips moving, nodding here and there. When he finished them, 
He had carefully put the papers away in his pocket. Even here in Gilead, paper was easily as valuable as gold. When these two sheets of it were safe, he'd look up at the violet dawn sky and nodded again. Wait here, he said, and went towards the leaning stone hut that served him as living quarters. He came back with a slice of rough and evened, of rough unleavened bread, broke it in two, and gave half to each. When it's over, each of you will put this beneath his shoes. Mind you, do exactly as I say, or I'll clout you into next week. They had not understood until they arrived, riding double on Cuthbert's gilding. They were the first, fully two hours ahead of anyone else, and the four horse and four hours before the hanging. So Gallows Hill stood deserted, except for the rooks and the ravens. The birds were everywhere. They roosted noisily on the hard, jutting bar that overhung the trap, the armature of death. They sat in a row along the edge of the platform. They jostled for position on the stairs. They leave the bodies, Cuthford muttered, for the birds. Let's go up, Rowan said. Cuthbert looked at him with something like horror. Up there, do you think? Roland cut him off with the gesture of his hands. We're years early. No one will come. All right. They walked slowly towards the gibbet. The birds took wing, cawing and circling like a mob of angry, dispossessed peasants. Their bodies were flat, black against the pure dawnlight of the inworld sky. For the first time, Roland felt the enormity of his responsibility in the matter. This wood was not noble, not part of the awesome machine of civilization, but merely warped pine from the forest barony, covered with splattered white bird droppings. It was splashed everywhere, stairs, railing, platform, and it stank. The boy turned to Cuthbert with startled, terrified eyes and saw Cuthbert looking back at him with the same expression. I can't, Cuthbert whispered. Ro, I can't watch it. Roland shook his head slowly. There was a lesson here, he realized. Not a shining thing, but something that was old and rusty and misshapen. Misshapen. It was why their fathers had let them come. And with his usual stubborn and articulate doggedness, Roland laid mental hands on whatever it was. You can, Bart. I won't sleep tonight if I do. Then you won't, Roland said, not seeing what that had to do with it. Cuthbert suddenly seized Roland's hand and looked up at him with such mute agony that Roland's own doubt came back, and he wished sickly that they had never gone to the West Kitchen that night. His father had been right. Better not to know better every man, woman, and child in Taunton dead and stinking than this. But still, still, whatever the lesson was, rusty, whatever half-buried thing with sharp edges, he would not let it go or give up his grip on it. Let's not go up, Cuthbert said. We've seen everything. And Roland nodded reluctantly, feeling his grip on that thing, whatever it was, weakened. Court, he knew, would have knocked them both sprawling, then forced them up to the platform, step by cursing step, and sniffing fresh blood back up their noses and down their throats like salty jam as they went. Court would probably have looped the new hemp over the yard on itself and put the nose around each of their necks in turn, and would have made them stand on the trap to feel it. Court would have been ready to strike them again if either whipped or lost control of his bladder, and Court, of course, would have been right. For the first time in his life, Roland found himself hating his own childhood. He wished for the long boots of age. He deliberately pried a splinter from the railing and placed it in his pot, breast pocket before turning away. 
"'Why did you do that?' Cuthbert asked. He wished to answer something swaggering. "'Oh, the luck of the gallows!' But he only looked at Cuthbert and shook his head. "'Just so I'll have it,' he said. "'Always have it.' They walked away from the gallows, sat down and waited. In an hour or so, the first of the townsfolk began to gather, mostly families who had come in broken-down wagons and beat-up buckas, carrying their breakfasts with them. Hampers of cold pancakes folded over fillings of wild pokeberry jam. Roland felt his stomach growl hungrily and wondered again with despair where the honor and the nobility was. He had been taught of such things and was now forced to wonder if they had all been lies all along or only treasures buried deep by the wise. He wanted to believe that, but it seemed to him that Hacks and his dirty whites walking around and around in a steaming subterranean kitchen and yelling at potboys had more honor than this. He fingered the splinter from the gallows tree with silk bewilderment. Cuthbert lay beside him with his face drawn and impassive. And at this, we're going to take another quick pause and I hope you are enjoying this. And so now we are at the um, at the gallows, waiting for the execution of Hacks the traitor. And we will see what we will see. And welcome back to Sepa Stories, as we are coming to the conclusion of Chapter Two of Stephen King's The Gunslinger. In our last recording, or before our little break, we had just completed um, hearing about Hacks, the cook, and the plan to poison a town or a, a township called Taunton with with poisoned meat. So they know that, um, of course, Cuthbert and Roland heard this, and they have told their fathers who are gunslingers themselves, and it is now time for Hacks the Cook to be executed, you know, as, as a traitor. So he has been taken to Gallows Hill, and the um, Gallows Hill is actually on the old Taunton Road, ironically the same place that was going to be poisoned with the poisoned meat, and Roland and Cuthbert are there to watch the execution. So we're at that point now where the execution is getting ready to happen. So let's continue on and thank you for listening in and let's see how this is going to end up. Stephen King's The Gunslinger. In the end, it wasn't such of a much and Roland was glad. Hacks was carried in an open cart, but only his huge girth gave him away. He had been blindfolded with a wide black cloth that hung down over his face. A few threw stones, but most merely continued with their breakfasts as they watched. A gunslinger whom the boy did not know well, he was glad his father had not drawn the black stone, led the fat cook carefully up the steps. Two guards of the watch had gone ahead and stood on either side of the trap. When Hacks and the gunslinger reached the top, the gunslinger threw the noosed rope over the cross-tree, then put it over the cook's head, dropping the knot until it lay just beneath the left ear. The birds had all flown, but Roland knew they were waiting. "'Do you wish to make a confession?' the gunslinger asked. "'I have nothing to confess,' Hack said. 
His words carried well, and his voice was oddly dignified, in spite of the muffle of the cloth which hung over his lips. The cloth ruffled slightly in the faint, pleasant breeze that had blown up. I have not forgotten my father's face. It has been with me through all. Roland glanced sharply at the cloud, at the crowd, and was disturbed by what he saw there. A sense of sympathy, perhaps admiration? He would ask his father. When traitors are called heroes, or heroes traitors, he supposed in his frowning way, dark times must have fallen. Dark times indeed. He wished he understood better. His mind flashed to court, and the bread court had given them. He had felt contempt. The day was coming when court would serve him. Perhaps not Cuthbert. Perhaps Bert would buckle under court's steady fire and remain a page boy or a horse boy or infinitely worse, a perfumed diplomat dallying in receiving chambers or looking under bogus crystal balls with doddering kings and princes. But he would not. He knew it. He was for the open lands and the long rides. That this seemed a good fate was something he would marvel over later in the solitude. Roland, I'm here. He took Cuthbert's hands and their fingers locked together like iron. Charge be capital, murder, and sedation, the gunslinger said. You have crossed the white, and I, Charles, son of Charles, consign you ever to the black. The crowd murmured some in protest. I never tell your telling, underworld maggot, said Charles of Charles, and yanked the lever with both yellow gauntleted hands. The trap dropped. Hacks plummeted through, still trying to talk. Roland never forgot that. The cook went, still trying to talk. And where did he finish the last sentence he would ever begin on earth? His words were ended by the sound of an exploding pine knot makes on a hearth in a cold heart of winter night. But on the whole, he thought it not so much. The cook's legs kicked out once in a wide why. The crowd made a satisfying whistling noise, and the guards of the watch dropped their military pose and began to gather things up negligently. Charles, son of Charles, walked back down the steps slowly, mounted his horse, and rode off, cutting roughly through one gaggle of picnickers, courting a few of the slow coaches, making them scurry. The crowd dispersed rapidly after that, and in forty minutes the two boys were left alone on the small hill they had chosen. The birds were returning to examine their new prize. One lit on Hax's shoulder and sat there chummily, darting its beak at the bright and shiny loop Hax had always worn in his right ear. "'It doesn't look like him at all,' Cuthbert said." Oh, yes, it does, Roland said confidently, as they walked towards the gallows, the bread in their hands. Bert looked abashed. They paused beneath the cross tree, looking up at the dangling, twisting body. Cuthbert reached up and touched one hairy ankle defiantly. The body started on a new twisting arc. Then rapidly they broke the bread and spread the rough chunks beneath the dangling feet. Roland looked back just once as they rode away. Now there were thousands of birds. The bread, he grasped only dimly, was symbolic then. It was good, Cuthbert said suddenly. It, I, I liked it. I did. Roland was not shocked by this, although he had not particularly cared for the scene. 
but he thought he could perhaps understand what Bert was saying. Perhaps he'd not finish as a diplomat after all, jokes and easy line of talk or not. I don't know about that, he said, but it was something. It surely was. The land did not fall to the good man for another five years, and by that time Roland was a gunslinger. His father was dead. He himself had become a matricide, and the world had moved on. The long years and long rides had begun. Look, Jake said, pointing upward. The gunslinger looked and felt a twinge in his right hip. He winced. They had been in the foothills two days now, and although the water skins were almost empty again, it didn't matter now. There would soon be all the water they could drink. He followed the vector of Jake's finger upward, past the rise of the green plain, to the naked and flashing cliffs and gorges above it, uh, on up towards the snow cap itself. Faint and far, nothing but a tiny dot. It might have been one of those motes that dance perpetually in front of the eyes, except for its consistency. The gunslinger beheld the man in black. Moving up the slopes with deadly progress, a minuscule fly on a huge granite wall. Is that him? Jake asked. The gunslinger looked at the depersonalized moat doing its faraway acrobatics, feeling nothing but a premonition of sorrow. That's him, Jake. Do you think we'll catch him? Not on this side. On the other. And not if we stand here talking about it. They're so high, Jake said. What's on the other side? I don't know, the gunslinger said. I don't think anybody does. Maybe they did once. Come on, boy. They began to move upward again, sending small runnels of pebbles and sand down towards the desert that washed away behind them, and the flat bake sheet that seemed never end. Above them, far above, the man in black moved up and up and up, it was impossible to see what he looked like, or if he looked back. He seemed to leap across impossible gulfs to scale sheer faces. Once or twice he disappeared, but always they saw him again, until the violet curtain of dusk shut him from their view. When they made their camp for evening, the boys spoke little, and a gunslinger wondered if the boy knew what he himself had already intuited. The thought of Cuthbert's face, hot, dismayed, excited, the thought of bread. He thought of the birds. It ends this way, he thought, again and again. It ends this way. There are quests and roads that lead ever onward. And all of them end in the same place, upon the killing ground. Except, perhaps, the road to the tower. There, Ka might show its true face. The boy the sacrifice, his innocent and very young in the tiny light of their fire. I'm so sorry. The boy, the sacrifice, his face innocent and very young in the light of their tiny fire, had fallen asleep over his beans. The gunslinger covered him with a horse blanket and then curled up to sleep himself. All right, so this was a very short read to the end of our second chapter. Can you believe it? We have already read the first two chapters of this book, and I am actually on page 120, and we had said um, earlier that there are about 
231 pages, so we're nearly halfway, which is wonderful. It is reading very quickly, and this has been a marvelous, marvelous uh, story so far. I hope you think so, too. So, we've gone on this already epic adventure with Roland, first, you know, across the desert and kind of getting to know him, hearing about Tull, and this last chapter where he's met, you know, I guess after his departure with Brown, we're kind of on to a new adventure with Jake. So, he meets Jake at the way station, and I think at first mistakes Jake for the man in black thought that, you know, he was all dried out and 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 blonde and, and dried out, you know, like literally just completely shriveled and shrunk and and you know, he, he mistakes Jake for the man in black and you know, he finds this boy, this this unusual, wonderful boy. And just like the town of Toll was a trap for Poor Roland. Roland is already suspecting that Jake is yet another trap left for him by the man in black. So we're seeing this unfold and his relationship with the boy is developing, you know, on their adventure, on their adventure as they're pursuing the man in black. So we find out that Jake is from New York City and we talked about that a little bit and that he seems to be an only child so far. So he has no siblings and he has no friends. You know, that was pretty clearly stated. His parents seem to be pretty wealthy and very affluent and very remote from him. So this is a very lonely child and kind of an adult child. So you kind of get that the sense that maybe Mrs. Shaw is his only friend and maybe the only personal person that is close to him and she's hired help so you know he's very much on his own and there's already um, discussion kind of about how he resents maybe his parents in a way he goes bowling at Midworld Lanes but not at a place that utilizes um, the stock or, or the, the inventory or equipment that his father has a stock claim in. So, you know, he they say that he didn't think about it, but he has. So he's already in a roundabout way resentful of his parents, I think, and maybe not so happy in his life. But, you know, doing what he's doing, he's, you know, he's, he's a kid. So about 10 or 11, I think, is the age they give him. So he's, he's a young boy. Um, which, you know, I understand 10 and 11, I've, I've got one myself about that age. And so, you know, they're, they're kids, but they're right on that cusp of tweening. And so, you know, but they, they see everything. So then you've got Roland, you know, and finding the story out through hypnosis. And I really love the detail of him using a slug and he kind of like rolls it over his fingers and I've seen magicians do this too you know where they roll the coins along their fingers and it's a pretty neat trick and it hypnotizes the boy and so he's able to get the story of the New York story out of Jake and while Roland doesn't know about New York City or I guess you know about Jake's 
adventure or Jake's story. He um, kind of gets the gist of, of the boy himself. And I think in meeting Jake, he's starting to compare and contrast his own childhood, um, I guess because he's with Jake. So as they're walking across the desert, still chasing the man in black, they are gaining on the man in black. And, but he's not really hurrying to catch him. And, you know, this is something that the gunslinger is contemplating. So I thought that was a nice detail that, you know, he and the boy are developing a relationship and even a friendship. Um, when Roland is in the cellar at the way station, collecting food for him and Jake, you know, uh, Jake was convinced that Roland, you know, would get trapped in the collapse of the way station. And, and he's like, well, I thought it got you, you know, and so, you know, he, he was afraid for Roland and, you know, Roland is kind of a hero for him. And there's a little bit of hero worship already happening there. And Roland is already very much liking this young boy. You know, he's, I think, identifying with Jake. And, you know, and he just likes the kid, you know, likes this kid. So this is really interesting to kind of see this unfold. And already I'm starting to see, you know, like a biblical parallel. Um you know, in the mountain and the sacrifice. And they allude to this, you know, towards the end of the way station. So uh, we hear about hacks and Roland, you know, is thinking about his own childhood. He's thinking about a hawk called David and court. We're finding out more about court. So court's kind of like this subconscious or maybe the angel on his shoulder, you know, his, um, the voice in his mind, you know, that that is there, that memory that maybe he uses to talk to himself. But Court's always kind of present in his mind. And he remembers this event in his childhood of discovering Hacks the cook that, you know, has takes care of kids. You know, he's a nice guy that kind of is impartial to everybody and well-liked um, by kids and by people. He's the cook and he's brought in in a plot to poison, you know, this township with poisoned meat. And of course, Cuthbert and Roland are eating a piece of pie that he's arranged for them to have, you know, feeding them on the sly. And they're eating under some stairs and they hear the whole treason plan. And it's this to me, when, you know, when Roland says it changed something in me, to me, I see this as Roland's childhood. Not only is Hacks dying, but Roland's own childhood is abruptly being laid behind him. You know, it's his moment or his, maybe his coming of age in a way where, you know, the things that even in a hard life of, of learning to become a gunslinger, you know, he's got the hawk, he's in training with court, you know, court's beating them to death, you know, out there as they're training. But, you know, he's, he's learning the way of the gun. But he hasn't directly been the cause of anyone's death up to this point that we know about yet until the cook. And so while he's not using a gun to kill hacks, he knows this treason story, and so he's utilizing that story, 
you know, and, and talking about it with his father. He knew Cuthbert would tell his father. And his report is causing this man's death. And his father is talking to him about this, you know, like it preys on you. And I thought it was interesting, you know, that his father, you know, was trying to reach out to his son. And he tells his son, I don't think in an insulting way, that, well, you're not smart, you're not quick like the other boys, but, you know, you're you're going to be formidable. You know, he can see that where Roland may not be a creative thinker or fast, you know, with quips and jokes or whatever, but, you know, he's methodical and he plods his way in his thinking, you know, his determination. His father sees that. And I could see that his father, in talking to him, is concerned over, in his way, his well-being over Roland. Roland's report being the death of the cook. And I thought this was very telling, you know, and he's saying, it preys on you and you know why did you tell and he's like well for the law for treason and his father says if you did it for something as cheap as this you know and I thought oh that's nice you know that you know why why did you tell it wasn't about the law it was about a deeper betrayal and that deeper betrayal was yes it was treason but it was also betraying the trust Roland had in him and also the death of Roland's own childhood in this moment. So for me, I'm interpreting it in this way. And, you know, the whole hanging and execution scene of Roland asking to go. His father didn't suggest it. Roland says, I'd want to go. You know, he wants to go see it. So I thought that was interesting too. You know, it's a man's choice. It was a man's action and responsibility. And his father, you know, allows him to go. So, and then the the actual execution itself, you know, seeing it, hearing it, being involved in the crowd, and seeing how the crowd wasn't cheering that Hacks was being executed, some were sympathetic. And that's really interesting. You know, even the father, his father saying, you know, that if there isn't a traitor, the people will invent one. And then Roland kind of looking around and seeing and understanding in that moment that when traitors are no longer traitors and heroes aren't heroes, it's dark days indeed. You know, this this reverse of what is right and what is wrong in the world that they know. And it was very telling. So we know now that there was very definite political turmoil happening when Roland was coming of age and they give a timeline of five years and between the execution of Hacks and then the end of five years uh, they already say that Roland's father is, is dead and that he has this is matricide he's guilty of matricide so he's, he's killed his mother in some way and things have changed in Roland himself as a gunslinger so things are happening very quickly five years is a very short time frame in a grand scheme of things so if we're thinking you know he's 11 or so in five years he's 15 or 16 so he's he's a very young man or some might even consider him in today's standards you know a, a child so it's something to kind of consider or, or rather Jake was 11 and we're assuming 
I'm assuming that Roland is approximately the same age. He may be older or younger, but I'm thinking um, Roland and Cuthbert might be about the same age as Jake, but I could be wrong, and that's not really clear in the reading. I'll have to go back and look. So the hanging of hacks, you know, and he dies with words in his mouth, and I thought, oh, that's the detailing was very um, vivid. So, not comfortable subject matter, but, again, another story within the story. And what I love, again, about this particular book are the way that, or is the way that Stephen King has written his story. And you're on this journey with Roland, but you're going forward and backward in time. Excuse me. You have these memory recollections. You have these these events that are happening, some of the stories told backwards and some of it, you know, then brings you abruptly forward. And so you've got this movement of time that is almost as disorienting as what Roland is saying, you know, is or is experiencing himself walking across the desert. You know, we've already heard Ali and, you know, Brown and now even Jake, you know, all saying that time's funny and they can't gauge time, they can't gauge distance well, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, like there's really no, no, like time is warped where he's at, and we don't know why. So, you know, it's just really weird, um, like things speed up or slow down, it just seems really odd. And now we have heard about the Dark Tower, but we don't really know a lot about that yet. So I've talked to her about as long as I read, <laughs> and, you know, I just wanted to kind of um, compare and contrast some things that stood out to me, and what I really love about what we have shared together for the story up to this point. So we have completed, as I said, the first two chapters, which brings us to our third mid-chapter, and that is titled the Oracle and the Mountains. Now what's interesting here is the first two chapters had like these blank pages between them. When this page ended and you know the boy the sacrifice his face innocent and very young and the light of their tiny fire had fallen asleep over his beans. I thought that was sweet. You know it's he's still a kid. Uh, the gunslinger covered him with a horse blanket and then curled up to sleep himself. So it's almost a fatherly type of thing he's caring for this boy. Underneath this last text of the book I have is again another little pen and ink drawing and it's the noose and it's kind of um, laid out almost in a squarish pattern and sitting in the actual noose itself is you know of course a rook or a raven or a crow sitting in the bottom of the noose so it's a little pen and ink drawing it's actually pretty nice. It, that'd be pretty ink. That'd <laughs> um, be a nice tattoo. <laughs> On the next page is the title page for our third chapter, and it's titled The Oracle in the Mountains. And there is a pen and ink drawing, and you can kind of see at this point, um, it's the silhouette of a man, and he's holding the jawbone in front of what looks to be a full moon and it looks like he's standing in a place that's reminiscent of Stonehenge and again this is like a wood print 
or a pen and ink. I can't tell if it's a woodcut or a pen and ink, but it's like a little small drawing. And in this image, I'm assuming this is our gunslinger and, you know, that it's the man and that he's got kind of longish hair and I kind of like not seeing features because my mind is already creating a face for Roland. I don't want to be given a face at this point because I have in my mind what he looks like already. Um, my mind is already creating that for me. So then you turn the page and the next is the actual third chapter which we will um, enjoy in our next get together. There is an illustration. So this is our second illustration and this one is the actual um, hanging at Gallows Hill. Now it doesn't follow what the book said. So this image is a bit different. I'll describe it. So you have Roland and Cuthbert and um, you can't really tell which is which because we don't know a lot about what Roland looks like yet. But we have one boy is taller than the other and one is wearing like a red jacket and the other one is wearing a blue and he's got like a vest over it and both have halves of the flatbread and they're standing in front of a gallows and the gallows is you know pretty beat up and it's covered in you know of course in bird spatterings and it looks like one of the one of the rests or guardrails in front of the gallows is broken loose and all around the gallows are birds. So the boys are looking up at the gallows in this painting or picture. And then you see Hacks and he's kind of hanging. So you have this rope that's hanging from the top of the image down and you see the back of, of Hacks with his hands tied behind him. He's wearing white and there's a crow actually on the man's um, shoulder and of course he's hung, you know, he's he's definitely dead at this point. But he doesn't have, um, there's no hood on him. And actually I can kind of see that they do have, like his face is covered up and that's a knotted tie around his head. So it, I thought for a moment that, I thought for a moment that perhaps they were just showing him uncovered and hung, but he is actually, it's not a hood that's over his head, but his face has like a tie over his eyes and it must hang over his face. And then you see that like they're on a hillside, but there's nobody around them. It's like a grassy hillside and the sky is very blue behind them. And so it's the boys getting ready to lay the bread, you know, of course, on the scaffold and the birds are very heavily around the gallows. So again, another wonderful illustration and you know, a little bit grim in subject matter, but this was a grim story. So, chapter three, the Oracle in the Mountains, will be what we are will be covering next. And there is also another illustration here, and I can tell you based on the illustrations that the character that we just saw, there were two boys. One was dark haired, the other was blonde, and it looks like our Roland character has dark hair. So, uh, per the illustration, so. Again, I don't like seeing his face. I like my mind to make up what he looks like. So I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you have a lovely, you know, rest of your day or evening, 
wherever you are listening to this. And if you've enjoyed hearing the story and some commentary, please uh, give me a recommend or share or uh, follow my, my page. And I will be trying to post the story more regularly. I did notice that there were, I'm able to see if there's um, listening or if people have listened to my audio files and so I was able to see that there had been listeners and I wanted to get something posted more quickly for you so this will be going up tonight and uh, for me I will try to get back to you and get our third chapter read this chapter read pretty quickly the way station the next chapter maybe a bit longer I'm looking at it now let's kind of see what we have this one does appear to be a bit longer than our last one. So I might break this one up into two readings as we are nearing the end of our book. And if you really like this one, um, I wouldn't mind reading the next book in the series, which is called The Drawing of the Three. And it is a rather bigger book, <laughs> but it is probably one of my favorites out of the whole series. And... Um, you know, I'll, I'll consider it. I might actually pick up um, Salem's Lot. That story will directly come into play in this book later or in this series. And I also really love vampires, so we might consider that too. So keep that in mind and have a good evening or a good day. And thank you for joining me at Seppa Stories. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.